Hello there, and welcome to City Breaks London, Episode 8, Buckingham Palace. I'm Marion Jones, and my hope for City Breaks is that I'll take you with me to some of the cities I've most enjoyed visiting, give you little snippets of history and culture and background info in general that will help you get the most out of your trip, if indeed you decide to go, or maybe just be interesting in its own right. We are now eight episodes into the London visit, And on the agenda today is one of the city's really most famous, most iconic buildings of the whole lot. If you think about London, you possibly see either the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben, or perhaps a red double-decker bus, or if not one of those, then probably that long pink stretch of road, the Mall, leading up to Buckingham Palace, where our royal family are based. I'm planning to spend the first half of the episode on the palace itself, its history, its traditions a little look inside and out, and then after that I'd like to pop inside two other buildings which are very close, part of the complex really, both of which you can visit. One is the Royal Mews, home of the horses and the limousines, and the other is the Queen's Gallery, an art gallery open to the public, specially set up to display an ever-changing array of some of the stuff, paintings, statues, works of art in general, that they can't squeeze into the palace itself or any of their other residences. Okay, so that's the plan. Starting at the beginning then, I think it's true to say that the royal family have not lived in Buckingham Palace for quite as long as many people think. Up until 1698, they were based at Whitehall Palace, just down the road. And it was only when that burnt down in 1698 that a new solution had to be found. Where were they going to live from then on? Various temporary solutions were found, but in the end, it came down to this building which had just been built in the year 1702 as a residence for the Duke of Buckingham, hence the name. And while he and his family and his descendants did live in it for the first half of the 18th century, in the year 1762 it was sold to King George III. He gave it a bit of a makeover, and then he gave it as a present to his wife Charlotte, and it became the family home, the focus of family life for George and Charlotte and their, wait for it, 15 children. And that all worked pretty well until 1820, when their son, George IV, became king, and he had a different view altogether. He didn't think it was suitable for him. He wanted a major reconstruction, and no less a person than the Duke of Wellington agreed with him that it would not do as a residence for the royal family. And here's an extract from the Duke of Wellington's speech to the House of Lords in 1828 on this very topic. I must say, he said, Notwithstanding the expense which has been incurred in building the palace, no sovereign in Europe, I may even add, perhaps no private gentleman, is so ill-lodged as the king of this country. Something, it was agreed by everybody, had to be done. So the palace was extended in various directions, quite a lot of it was rebuilt, the well-known architect Nash was brought in, lots and lots of money was spent, but it wasn't without controversy. King George IV ruled for only ten years. All of that period was spent working on the palace, but when he died in 1830, it became clear that it actually had become a bit of a laughing stock in many ways. Here, for example, is some wording from a letter by one Thomas Creevey, written in the 1830s, in which he explained exactly what he thought was wrong with it. And it has to be said, quite a lot of people agreed with him. Never, he wrote, was there such a specimen of wicked, vulgar profusion. It has cost a million of money, and there is not a fault that has not been committed in it. 
The costly ornaments of the staterooms exceed all belief in their bad taste and every species of infirmity. Raspberry-coloured pillars without end that quite turn you sick to look at. But the Queen's paper for her own apartments far exceed everything else in their ugliness and vulgarity. Nevertheless, when Queen Victoria became Queen in 1837, she was very keen to move out of Kensington Palace and into Buckingham Palace. As I'll be explaining in the Kensington episode, she wasn't very happy at Kensington Palace and was very keen to have her independence and live away, particularly from her mother. However, it wasn't very long before some of the ways in which the palace was lacking became apparent, and doubly so after Victoria's marriage, when Albert moved in too. He had an eye for detail, and he didn't like what he saw. The chimneys smoked so much that you couldn't have the fires burning all the time, so the palace was often cold. The ventilation was terrible, so that inside it smelt quite bad. When the, at the time, rather modern gas lamps were installed, people began to worry about gas building up and possibly being a fire risk. And Prince Albert swept through all of this, reorganising, getting the household offices and staff in order, having all the design faults put right. So far, so good, but only a few years later, in 1845, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert began to have more doubts, this time about the size of the place. They already had a growing family, there were going to be nine children in all, and it was beginning to feel too small. In fact, Queen Victoria wrote to the Prime Minister, Robert Peel, about, quote, the urgent necessity of doing something about Buckingham Palace. She went on to give her reasoning, writing about, quote, the total want of accommodation for our little family, which is fast growing up. She went on to increase her wish list. What was needed, she said, was, quote, a room capable of containing a larger number of those persons one has to invite in the course of the season, to balls, concerts, etc. That's much wanted. Equally so, improved offices and servants' rooms. So, a solution was found. A new wing was planned, Prince Albert would oversee the work himself, and two huge new rooms were added, the ball and concert room and the ball supper room, both of which you can see today if you go on a guided tour. The latter, the ball supper room, was especially sumptuous. They designed it to appear like the interior of an exotic tent. The ceiling, wrote a description in a magazine called The Builder, published at the time, was, quote, a blue velarium, sewn with golden stars and bordered by arabesques. It is painted as if the sky was seen beyond, between the cords which tie it down at the foot. The magazine approved of all this and called the palace the headquarters of taste. So that set the scene for a new era when Victoria and Albert would host lots of large groups of people. There was much merriment, parties, music, etc. A really happy period. Here, for example, is the guidebook on the ballroom and its suitability for concerts. Both the Queen and Prince Albert were competent and devoted musicians, and more than a hundred orchestral concerts were given at the palace in the course of Queen Victoria's reign. During a state ball, two or three orchestras would be disposed around the state apartments. In 1838, the Austrian composer and conductor Johann Strauss the Elder composed his tribute to Queen Victoria of Great Britain including a waltz-time version of the National Anthem. Felix Mendelssohn visited on five occasions between 1842 and 1847, each time playing for the royal couple and sometimes listening to or accompanying their own singing. There were lavish costume balls and dances and receptions. 
But all of this came to an end when Albert died. Widowed, Queen Victoria was grief-stricken, pretty much withdrew from public life, left Buckingham Palace to live much more at Windsor Castle or Balmoral or her favourite, Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. So the palace was then seldom used, became a little bit neglected and was shuttered up for most of the year. And it wasn't then until Victoria's death in 1901, when her son Edward became Edward VII, that things began to change again. He too wanted major redecoration inside, and he wanted a memorial, a fitting memorial to his mother, to be made of the palace. So it was at that point that the Mall was laid out as an approach road to the palace, with Admiralty Arch at one end and the Victoria Memorial at the other. That's the memorial you can still see today, sitting up on that little roundabout at the end of the Mall and just in front of the palace. 2,300 tonnes of monument it is, Victoria enthroned and surrounded by eight sculptures which represent what were felt to be the great achievements of her reign. Quite a Victorian list actually. Progress and peace, manufacture and agriculture, painting and architecture, shipbuilding and war. The Buckingham Palace Guidebook comments on this project that, quote, the whole composition remains London's grandest set piece of urban planning. The rough guide, I'm afraid, is slightly less adoring and sums its view up in one word, namely bombastic. So we're into the 20th century and the period then during which the palace had a lot of significance in the public mind was World War II. The royal family stayed there in central London, felt indeed that it was their duty to do so. As Queen Elizabeth put it, by way of explanation, quote, The children will not leave unless I do, I shall not leave unless their father does, and the king will not leave in any circumstances whatever. It is said, in fact, that the Queen Mother, as she later became known when her daughter was on the throne, was sometimes seen around the palace with a pistol because she liked to shoot local rats. The palace didn't escape unscathed. It was bombed, I believe, nine times. Once, in fact, a bomb fell right into the palace quadrangle while King George and Queen Elizabeth were actually in residence. Lots of windows were blown in, the chapel was destroyed, the king and queen were filmed inspecting the damage. Quite iconic photographs, actually. The queen is there with her matching hat and coat. And it was at this point that she made one of the remarks which people never forgot. I'm glad we've been bombed, she said. Now I can look the East End in the face. If you've seen photographs or television pictures from Buckingham Palace, it's more likely than not that what they featured was the balcony, out at the front, looking down the Mall, the place on which, on so many occasions, members of the royal family have gathered in order to be seen in public. And just going through some of those occasions underlines the extent to which Buckingham Palace has played a role in the history of the nation. The first person to appear in public on the balcony, in fact, was Queen Victoria herself, something she did on the occasion of the opening of the Great Exhibition in Hyde Park. That was a major project masterminded by Prince Albert, which brought, it seemed anyway, half the world to London, and the Queen wanted to show her support. And the way she chose to do that was with a balcony appearance. Fast-forwarding to August the 4th, 1914, when war, of course, had just been declared on Germany, George V was called out onto the balcony three times by a crowd. They had instinctively come to Buckingham Palace. They wanted to see the king as a sort of sign that he knew what was happening and he approved of the fact that England had signed up to go to war. 
and it was there too on Armistice Day, 11th of November 1918, that royal appearances were made. Not just once, but actually night after night, crowds were there calling for the King and Queen to come out to the balcony so that they could cheer and wave to them. When George V celebrated his Silver Jubilee in 1935, again a balcony gathering, and pictures of that show the future Queen Elizabeth II at the age of only nine and her younger sister, both there waving at the crowds. So, of course, of course, with the victory in World War II, once again Buckingham Palace was the focal point for national celebration. Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister, famously joined the royal family up on the balcony during the V-Day celebrations. And during that day, the royal family came out no fewer than eight times. And what nobody realised at the time was that the young princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret, were allowed out during the final appearance to slip into the crowd and get some experience of the celebrations down at that street level. When she was crowned Queen eight years later, Queen Elizabeth II appeared on the balcony with Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. That was on June 2nd, 1953, and again thousands of fans there to greet the new monarch. It was the first coronation ever to be televised, and 27 million people in the UK who couldn't make it to London watched all of this on their screens. These days, all major royal occasions feature a balcony appearance. For example, one of the early ones in this century was for the Queen Mother's 100th birthday celebrations. And let's not forget the weddings. The first royal wedding at which an appearance on the balcony was made was back in 1922, Princess Mary. And another little piece of royal history was made on the occasion of the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana, because they were the first newlywed couple to treat the crowds to a balcony kiss, a gesture copied by Prince William and the Duchess of Cambridge on their wedding day. Although they went one better because they kissed twice, watched by more than one million people in person, all the way down the Mall, all the way, in fact, along the route between Buckingham Palace and the Abbey where the wedding was held. Jubilees, of course, we must have a balcony appearance. The Silver Jubilee in 1977, when the Queen appeared with Prince Philip, her four children and her mother, sister and one cousin. But for the Golden Jubilee in 2002, there was a much larger group of the royal family, her adult children, the spouses, the grandchildren. But it was noted that ten years after that, for the Diamond Jubilee, when Prince Philip was in hospital, there were just five people alongside the Queen. Prince Charles, Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and Prince Harry. The message seemed to be that this was the stripped-down royal family, perhaps more suitable for our modern age. Another occasion every year when the balcony comes into its own is the ceremony of the Trooping of the Colour, a colourful parade, full pomp and ceremony, which marks the annual official birthday parade of the monarch in June, and which ends with an RAF fly-past. So after some 1,400 soldiers have finished parading, the 200 horses go home, 400 or so musicians pack up their things, and along comes the RAF and flies right over the palace. There's usually a small grandchild or two who can be relied upon to stick their fingers in their ears, showing what they think of the noise. Perhaps you are wondering whether you can ever get inside Buckingham Palace, and the answer is yes you can, because a couple of months every year in summer, when the royal family are elsewhere normally at Balmoral in Scotland, it is opened up for paying guests. After you've been through security, you can go on a designated route round quite a lot of the main rooms of the palace. 
So you see the rooms as they are used every day, and usually in one or two of them, there's a special exhibition set up, perhaps photographic or sometimes a display of, for example, royal wedding dresses. You won't see everything, of course, but then nor would you want to, once you find out that there are 19 state rooms, 55 royal guest bedrooms, 188 staff bedrooms and 92 offices. But you do get a good look at the heart of the palace, some of the state rooms. They've been designed for, to quote the guidebook, receiving, rewarding and entertaining. And of the 19, I've picked out just a few highlights to mention. I think you will remember the Grand Entrance Hall, which is for the reception of visitors. I enjoyed the description in the guidebook, which tells us that just outside is the porte cochere, which is a rather fancy term for what in, let's say, McDonald's speak really means drive-through, I think. So the carriages can enter the palace grounds, come right up under the roofing just outside the main entrance, so that should it be, let's say, raining, you can be dropped off without getting wet. The cochere applies it's just for coaches, but I think actually these days taxis, limousines, etc. all stop there too. And when you get inside the grand entrance, what you'll see then is marble staircases, very much a red, white and gold colour theme, marble statues, portraits of royalty, not so much modern ones, at least not there. The ones displayed in the entrance hall were put there, I believe, in the time of Queen Victoria. So you've got George III and Queen Charlotte, her grandparents and her parents and so on. Another room that's bound to make an impression is the throne room, which has in fact two thrones in it sitting under a canopy of red and gold, loads of chandeliers, lit apparently in Victoria's time by 200 candles, red carpet, red wall hangings, made of silk. You get the picture. And talking of pictures, there's the picture gallery, which is a long room that runs centrally right through the palace, with the most incredible array of artwork. Some Holbein, some Rembrandt, a Rubens or two, Canaletto, some of the absolute highlights of the Royal Collection. The tour normally, I think, takes you into the ballroom as well, which is absolutely enormous, 34 metres long, apparently, and which is the room often used for state banquets, for investiture ceremonies, that sort of thing. Yet more red, white and gold. There are lots and lots more rooms, but I won't go through them all. Just to give a flavour, there's a green, a blue and a white drawing room, there's a music room, and so on. All of these being the state rooms used for public occasions. Official photographs after royal weddings and christenings and whatnot are often taken in the music room, for example. One more little detail which gives a flavour of the enormity of the thing. There are, apparently, 350 clocks in Buckingham Palace, and to keep them all in order, two people are employed with the most wonderful job title of Horological Conservators. And we're helpfully told that their tasks include winding the clocks and keeping them working. So, reasons why people might get inside the palace would include the tourism in the summer, the two months when it's open and you can pay to go in, and various other occasions when particular people are invited along. In the old days, up until about the 1950s, I think, there was the court presentation of debutantes every year, when young aristocratic ladies, who were just making their first entree into society, would be invited to a presentation to the monarch at court. This was very much the thing from the reign of Edward VII onwards, so from the beginning of the 20th century. Debutantes would arrive wearing full court dress, with apparently three ostrich feathers in their hair. They would curtsy, and then they would walk backwards away before performing one further curtsy. 
after World War II, when there was a general opening up of society and loosening of many conventions, this became a bit less formal. So there would be an afternoon ceremony for which you didn't have to wear court evening dress. And in 1958, the whole thing was abolished. The Queen decided that instead of just welcoming debutantes to a presentation party, she would have garden parties instead. Up to 8,000 people at a time are invited. There are normally three, I think, during the summer, and they're the largest functions to which people are invited, which take place in the palace. They do get quite a long way down the population. I happen to know two people who have been. One in his capacity as a magistrate, when he finished serving, he was invited to go. And one who didn't attend the actual garden party, but was drafted in to help in his capacity as an army cadet. They spent two or three days up there, camped in the grounds, and helped with, I'm not sure what, car parking, I think, in general arrangements. But nevertheless, an experience they're never going to forget. Another occasion on which members of the public are invited to the palace are investitures, of which there are, I think, over 20 every year. So, for example, somebody who's going to be given a knighthood will attend the dubbing ceremony here, as will people receiving other awards. For an investiture, the Queen, or whoever's deputising for her, certainly that could be Prince Charles or Prince William, will stand on a raised platform underneath a giant domed velvet canopy. Music will be provided by a military band. Award recipients will approach the Queen, receive their honours, watched by their family and friends. And then there are the state banquets, which take place in the ballroom. These are formal dinners held on the first evening of a state visit by any foreign head of state. I think usually there are two or three of those a year. At the state banquet, there'll be up to 170 guests. And we are told that formal apparel is required. White tie and decorations. I think that means medals and whatnot, as opposed to just, you know, ribbons. But it does say specifically this may include tiaras. The beginning of the banquet is often televised, as the Queen leads the main guests and other members of her own family into the room. So perhaps you can picture the dining table laid with the very grand service, that's actually what it's called, it being a collection of silver gilt plate made in 1811 for the Prince of Wales. Apparently it takes five days to set up this banqueting table and the Queen herself personally inspects it before any of her guests get anywhere near it. And lastly, we must mention the person who is invited to the palace on a weekly basis for their audience with the Queen, namely the British Prime Minister. Occasionally little bits of that are photographed or televised, but it's absolutely a tradition that nothing of what is discussed between them should make it out into the public. So all of this underlines the idea that Buckingham Palace isn't just a royal residence, it's also very much a place of work. It is the Queen's home when she's in London, and you can tell when she's there because the royal standard will be flying above the palace. That's the red, blue and gold flag which is divided into four different quarters. If you see the Union Jack, that means she's not there. The royal standard flies indeed from any building where the Queen is present, and its importance was brought home to me in a description I read somewhere which read, The royal standard, which only flies from buildings where the Queen is present, is supreme over all other flags, and it never flies at half-mast. And before I leave Buckingham Palace and go next door, I must mention the changing of the guard, the ceremony in which the soldiers who've been on duty at Buckingham Palace and St James's Palace, they're known as the Old Guard, are relieved by the New Guard. This all takes place at 11am 
or perhaps I should say from 11am, because the whole thing lasts nearly an hour. Old guards arrive from Buckingham Palace and St James's Palace, to the music of a band, of course. Then the new guard arrives from Wellington Barracks, more music. A transfer of duties is carried out, again more music, and at 12.05 the old guard leaves and marches back to Wellington Barracks, to music, of course. So now is a good time to pop next door to the Royal Muse, a fascinating establishment which you can also get into and look round. It's home to the horses which play their part in all those state occasions. It's home too to the carriages they pull, and in fact, this being the 21st century, also to the royal cars. As with so many aspects of the British royal family, it has a history which dates right back, this time to the year approximately 1360, when Edward III was on the throne, although the buildings you see today were built in the 1820s. And the first car arrived in 1901. So the various horses, soldiers and cars who are based here come out at all occasions when transport is required. Processions, weddings, funerals, trooping of the colour, the state opening of Parliament, everything. And probably in the case of the cars, all sorts of other occasions when just an ordinary car is what you need. So there are their stables, a riding school and a garage. There are 30 plus horses and it's said that the Queen knows them all by name, even though some of them are identical pairs and some of them are extra special. Perhaps none more than a Canadian mare called Burmese, which the Queen rode to Trooping the Colour for 18 years in a row. And when Burmese retired... In 1986, when the Queen must have been, I think, 60, that was the last occasion on which she rode herself at Drooping of the Colour. Since then, she switched to a coach. So there's someone in charge. Nominally, that's the staff master of the house. He's more of a figurehead, really. The person who actually runs the Royal Muse is known as the Crown Equerry, who has responsibility for all the horses, all the cars and all the carriages. It is a working stable, of course, so there's a daily routine with mucking out at 6am, grooming, exercising, etc. And it's open to the public from 10am, so then you can go in and watch some of these things being done. It's rather nice because all the horses' names are up in their stalls. They're hard-working horses. They have an annual calendar of events, which might run something like maybe a state visit in the spring, the London season, which will include Trooping the Colour and Royal Ascot, perhaps another state visit, in early summer, and then in August and September, a well-earned rest. They go out to Hampton Court, apparently, where they are put out to grass for a few weeks, before coming back to London, where there might be another state visit in the autumn, and where they certainly will be required for the state opening of Parliament in November. Whatever spectacle they're working on, the horses certainly make a huge impression, but so too do the liveries or the uniforms worn by the various humans involved. So there'll be different liveries for coachmen and footmen. I think they tend to be bright red, and then the chauffeurs wear dark blue jackets and navy caps. The third aspect then, apart from the human and animal, is the equipment, the coaches, and what coaches there are. You can look round the buildings in which they're housed and see them from really quite close up. Once again, there's scope for an enormous list, but let's just give a flavour. So perhaps the best-known coach of all is the one known as the Gold State Coach, commissioned by George III in 1762. And what a sight it looked. It was pulled along by eight cream horses, 
and took him to the House of Lords to open Parliament. It weighs four tons, it's gilded all over, and the most amazingly intricate decorations all over it too. Palm branches, victory symbols, sea gods, cherubs, a crown and scepter. You could almost say, you name it, it'll be there somewhere. And it's been used at every coronation since the one in 1821 for George IV. It's said to be famously uncomfortable. William IV, who followed on from George IV, said that riding in it was like being on, quote, a tossing sea. And George VI, who used it for his coronation procession, described it as, quote, one of the most uncomfortable rides I've ever had in my life. This was the coach which featured so heavily at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1953. And quite a lot of the public saw it that year because it used to go out at 7am to rehearse on Sunday mornings. And once people found this out, they went along to watch. A couple of other main coaches, the 1902 State Landau, which is an open carriage that was designed for Edward VII, maroon and gold in colour, with a crimson satin interior, used, for example, at the weddings of Prince Charles and Prince William, and by the Queen herself on the occasion of her Diamond Jubilee, when she came from St Paul's back to Buckingham Palace in it. Another one you see quite a lot of is the Glass Coach. It sounds like something out of Cinderella, but actually it's called the Glass Coach just because it's got bigger windows than the others, I think, and it is traditionally used to take royal brides to their weddings. I think because you get a better view of them inside there than inside some of the other coaches. Used, for example, by the Queen Mother on her wedding day, by Princess Anne, by Princess Diana. There are so many more. I'll just mention one more which I like, the Irish State Coach. The reason I like that is the story that went with it. It was made in Dublin and it was seen by Queen Victoria when she visited Ireland. It was at an exhibition and she liked it so much she bought it paid £850 apparently and had it shipped back to England. And that Irish coach was her preferred mode of transport after the death of Prince Albert, when she refused any more to use the gold state coach. And there are so many more. Let me just read some of the marvellous names. There are Clarence's, a King Edward VII town coach. There's something called the Balmoral Sociable, one called the Curricle, and one called the French Charabang. There is a fleet of royal cars too, limousines, Rolls Royces, Bentleys, Jaguars. And the first one arrived in 1901, not by coincidence, but because that was the year when Queen Victoria died. She had made it very clear that she didn't want what she called, quote, any of those horrible machines in her stables. And so in 1901, when she died, her son Edward went straight out and bought the first car and established a garage at the Royal Mews. And just to finish off then, a quick mention of the Queen's Gallery, which is an art gallery bang next door to Buckingham Palace, also open to the public, and which has as its role the idea that it's a permanent space in which various things from the Royal Collection, which are not on display anywhere else, can be shown. I found a description which read as follows. An astonishing and wide-ranging collection of paintings, sculpture and other works of art, as well as a glittering array of priceless treasure, held in trust for the nation by Her Majesty the Queen. It's built on to the west front of Buckingham Palace. It's been there about 40 years, and it was the brainwave of Prince Philip. The original building, which went up in the 1830s, was used as a private chapel for Queen Victoria, but it was destroyed in an air raid during World War II, and at Prince Philip's suggestion after the war, it was redeveloped to form an art gallery for the Royal Collection. 
There's a changing array of things on display, typically about 450 things, often grouped as a special exhibition. So just to give a flavour, some of the exhibitions they've had in the last few years would include a number dedicated to particular artists, Michelangelo, Van Dyck, Hans Holbein the Younger, Gainsborough, George Stubbs, and many more. There have been exhibitions of Sèvres porcelain, one on the Fabergé works, and I went to one on tableware used in the Georgian period. There are often royal portraits and photographs too. I saw one, for example, of the royal family on the terrace at Osborne House, taken in May 1857. And then various of their other treasures you can see on occasion. So, for example, the drawing of Sir Thomas More, done by Hans Holbein the Younger, a book of common prayer, dating from 1839, and Queen Charlotte's Notebook, dating from 1765. It's definitely worth keeping an eye out for what the current exhibition is, because that changes, I think, two or three times a year. It's somewhere that you may end up visiting more than once. So then, that rounds off a visit to the complex that is Buckingham Palace, and I hope I've left you a little bit more familiar with what it is, what its history is, and what you can see if you go on a visit. That's the last of the episodes I've planned on what you might call central, well-known, iconic London. The city, Westminster, the Mall, etc. So next week, a new flavour. We're off to the Inns of Court, one of those areas of London that is completely unique. The legal bit, much of it dating back to medieval times, but also the centre of the legal profession today. A whole collection of little squares and passageways and old buildings, some of it Dickensian in flavour, that you can wander around, and which is especially a good idea if somewhere in the middle of your London trip, what you really need is a saunter somewhere quiet and away from the noise and the bustle and the traffic. All of this being true, despite the fact that the Inns of Court, there are four of them, are off some of the busiest roads in the whole of central London. So I hope you'll be interested to hear that. Although in fact we're not leaving royalty behind completely, because there's a future episode planned on Kensington and Kensington Palace. For today, though, that's it. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.